So it dawned on me this week as I was not really thinking about the sermon, but I was just kind of thinking ahead for over the next coming weeks and so on. Do you realize if you are a kid or have kids, do you realize that like in nine days our kids are going back to school? It's like crazy to me. The nine days they're going back to school. The summer is gone like that, right? And this year, I have to confess, this year is a bit of a, it's a bit of a significant year in the Kraus household because this year, my little baby, my little three-year-old bri-bri is getting on the bus and going to full day junior kindergarten, which means that this year, all of my kids are in school. And that's a new era for Krista and me. Um, it's sort of a, like, that's a significant emotional moment to look at your kids and realize, come fall, you kids are going to be out of the house on my day off, which is fantastic. I'm going to get stuff done around that. No, I miss my kids. I'm going to miss them because I love my kids. But, um, but this is the thing I've been thinking about is that, that <laughs> school is coming, which means homework is coming. And the dreaded tension that I live in during homework season, which is, how much do I affirm my kids and support them and, you know, all that because of how well they're doing? And how much do I lean on the gas pedal with my kids and try and encourage them and spur them on to do better? Right? The whole affirmation, correction kind of tension. So the other day, uh, my six-year-old, who's just going to be six, Trevi comes up to me and she says, Dad, I drew a picture of Noah's Ark. And she gave it to me, and I looked at it, and it was fantastic. It was a picture. It was visually identifiable as an ark. I don't know whether she copied it out of a children's Bible or something, but you could look at it, and it was an ark. And she said, you know, she said, you can tell that it's an ark because I labeled it at the top. I wrote ark. So I looked at the top. It said R-R-K-C. Ark. <laughs> I was like, it's beautiful, but who taught you to spell? Like, what, have you not been paying attention in phonics? Like, what do you, you know, it's just sort of like, I want to encourage you. And that's not how you spell ark. I Like my, my other one, Bri, she's turning four. She drew this picture. She came to me, my girls, they're girls. They draw pictures. So she comes up to me and said, Dad, I drew a picture of you at a wedding. And she gave it to me. It was scribbles, like scribbles. Like there was blue scribbling and green scribbling and red scribbling. It was Jackson Pollock. That's what it was. She was scribbling. And she said to me that red is you. What part of this red scribble makes you think of me? Like, give me a head, give me hands, give me something. But you, you, I want to affirm them, and it's amazing, and you're so creative, and it's awesome, and I want to help you grow and do better, and, and it's this constant tension that we live in. And that's what we've been talking about all month long in this whole series, Just Breathe. It's about the tensions that we live with in our life of faith. We, we are called to live lives of unity and community. And yet, we're called to build our communities out of radical diversity with people who think and look and act and believe and behave differently than we do, who are racially, 
ethnically, demographically, socioeconomically different than us. So we're supposed to be as different as we can be and yet be as united as we can possibly be. And if there's a tension there or we're called to live this incredibly intense, real and vital personal faith, but it can't be a private faith. It has to be a public, lived in covenant committed community with the rest of the church. You, you cannot have a private faith. That's just not Christian faith. And there's a tension between, <coughs> excuse me, my private faith or my personal faith and my communal faith. And how do you navigate these tensions, especially when you, all of us in all these tensions tend to drift to one side or the other, right? I prefer, you know, I drift towards unity. And so I want to be surrounded by people who are just like me and diversity just dies. Or I, I want to really build into my personal relationship with Jesus. So then I drift away from the church and my community faith dies. And we all have a bias. And, um, and the goal is to try and figure out how to live beyond our bias, which is why we've been using the metaphor of breathing because um, in breathing, you have these polar opposite behaviors, inhaling and exhaling. And it's not that you can choose one or the other. It's that you have to learn how to do both in concert and in rhythm with each other because that's where life is. If you get too zealous about inhaling and start to neglect exhaling, you're gonna die. That's not, the body's not designed to work that way. And so how do we learn to breathe and to balance these two poles, these tensions in our life of faith. Well, the one that I'm going to talk about this morning, this last week in uh, Just Breathe, and we could have done this forever. I think maybe one day we should come back to this topic because there's so many tensions we could have talked about. But the one that I want to talk about this morning is the tension that we experience with, and this is what I'm going to call it, on the one hand, between unconditional forgiveness Right On the one hand, this idea that our faith in God is rooted in God's unconditional forgiveness of us, that his acceptance and embrace of us is rooted in his unconditional forgiveness of us. And yet, at the same time, God calls us to a life of unconditional obedience. That at some level, um, our faith depends on us committing to a life of being wholeheartedly obedient to him. It's like the tension with my kids that on the one hand, I want to embrace them in grace and acceptance, you know, regardless of how they do with their art and their ark and how they spell the word ark and all of this. I just want to embrace them and love them and say, it's fantastic and I love you and you're wonderful and you don't have to ever change. And yet, I want them to be continuously doing better. I want them to grow in their ability to become everything that I know they have the potential to become. That's the tension. And how do we live in that tension? Well, I want to explore that this morning by looking at a story that Tim introduced it to a couple weeks ago. But we're going to go really in depth into the story in John chapter 8. So I'll start in verse 2. Where it says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, just having an affair. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Uh, what do you say? So in the context of the book of John, this is, happening right after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast in late fall 
when Jews would come from all over the nation of Israel and they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would live in and around the city in these makeshift lean-tos and tents. And it was a way of commemorating and remembering how their ancestors lived in makeshift tents and lean-tos when they were traveling through the wilderness for 40 years and to celebrate the fact that God cared for their ancestors for 40 years in the wilderness while they were living in these shelters and provided for them whatever they needed. And so this is them coming before God to celebrate his faithful provision in the face of their faithfulness to him because they're just going into the rainy season and if they're gonna have crops the following spring, they need God to provide water. They need God to provide the rain. And so it's kind of a commemoration and a celebration and they're petitioning God to be God of faithful provision. So you have all these thousands and thousands of people living in tents around the city of Jerusalem in the hills. And it's what Rob Bell, who's a blogger and a, and a pastor and a writer says, it was kind of like religious camping with lots of wine. So it was a feast. And so what happened, I guess, in this particular instance was the kind of stuff that happens sometimes when there's lots of wine, that this woman overdoes it. And she finds herself wandering into the wrong tent with the wrong guy and doing the wrong stuff. And somehow the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they find out about this. And they think, perfect. This is a perfect opportunity for us to accuse and to trap Jesus. And so they bring her before Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I know you're a friend of sinners, right? Because Jesus makes a whole ministry. You read the gospels, one of the most scandalous things about with Jesus are the uh, things about Jesus are the, the, the people he hangs out with. He hangs out with the kinds of people that you and I would be embarrassed uh, to be seen in public with. Jesus hangs out with all the wrong kinds of people and, and the Pharisees know this. And so they say, okay, Jesus, this is your kind of person, right? This is the kind of person who um, is not, there's a, they're a sinner. They're not living a life of following God and whatever. This is what she's done. What do you think? Should we forgive her? Or should we do what the law of Moses says and stone her to death because she's been disobedient to God? And here it is, the tension. Is God a God of unconditional forgiveness that is going to let this woman off the hook despite the terrible decisions that she's made? Or is God a God who demands unconditional obedience? I just got those backwards, but unconditional obedience. Um, and there's consequences for when you disobey. What's Jesus, which is more important? What's Jesus going to choose? And the stakes, of course, for Jesus are really high because if he says, no, we're going to let her off the hook and forgive her, well, then he's just proven that he is disobedient to the law of Moses. And he's basically said to everybody that if you follow me, uh, you can get forgiven and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you do. But if he says, no, you know, you're right, we need to, to stone her to death. He's been faithful to the law of Moses and its vision for obedience but he has completely compromised his reputation. He lacks integrity. He's a hypocrite. What's Jesus going to do? We get caught in the same tension. Because the Bible very clearly teaches that, God, that a life of faith is both about unconditional forgiveness and unconditional obedience. 
right? Look at the, at the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you come to God and say, you know what, God? I messed up. I, I need your forgiveness. I, that God will come on the base of your confession. He'll forgive all your sins and cleanse you from all the stuff that you've done wrong. Like God, God is about unconditional forgiveness. And yet two chapters later, 1 John 3 verse 6, John says, no one who lives in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen Jesus or known Jesus. John says, okay, that forgiveness thing is fine. If you actually need forgiveness because you actually like live a life where sin happens, you don't even know anything about Jesus. Like you just have nothing to do with Jesus. You can't possibly be a Jesus follower if you're living a life where you just continue to sin. So is it unconditional forgiveness or unconditional obedience? And for us, the stakes are high too. Because like all these tensions, we tend to bias, we tend to pick one or the other. There's some people who gravitate towards this idea of unconditional forgiveness, that God is a God of love who embraces us and welcomes us and accepts us no matter who we are, what we've done. I have said that from this stage millions of times. Maybe that might be an exaggeration. Lots of times I've said it. Um, But if you live into that too hard, you can very quickly find yourself in a place where you actually genuinely believe that it doesn't really, at the end of the day, matter how you live because God will just forgive you in the end anyway. In fact, I knew a friend who said his Catholic buddies used to do pre-confession. They'd go to the priest. I mean, this is a while ago when confession still happened more regularly, but they'd go to the priest on Friday and they'd confess all the sins they planned to do on the weekend. And then the priest would tell them, okay, well, you're already absolved. Just go and do this you know, after the fact. And they would like, they pre-confess their sins because it doesn't matter how you live because you're going to get forgiven anyway. Right? Ask the family whose loved one is making destructive choices and who's wandering away from Jesus and they say, you know, it breaks my heart, but I know that he prayed a prayer, prayed the sinner's prayer when he was seven. He asked Jesus to forgive his sins and Jesus did and I know that Jesus accepts him and loves him and he's going to heaven and it's kind of a way of saying it doesn't really matter how you live. And that's a really dangerous kind of faith because what ends up developing is this totally self-centered, narcissistic vision of the life of faith where um, I get to profess my faith in Jesus and then do whatever I want. I get to have my cake of being a spiritual person and I get to eat it too because nobody gets to tell me what to do. Um, it's a really immature kind of faith. Like a, like a child who's never been disciplined by their parents and they become spoiled and they just don't know how to be responsible. You, you never learn how to live a responsible faith. It's a really empty or it's a vacuous kind of faith. There's nothing prophetic that you can speak into the world about the condition of the world. We live in a world that is selfish and greedy and violent and pornographic and unjust and, and, and somebody who lives too hard on this side has nothing to say about that. What are you going to say? Well, I don't know. Just say sorry when you're done. It'll be fine. It's a dangerous place to be over on that side, but it's a dangerous place to be over on this side too. And there are other people who bias towards believing that faith is about unconditional obedience, that your acceptance before God depends on how well you perform the tasks that God has called you to perform. So, So I'm a Christian and God loves me and he accepts me because I go to church 
And I even raise my hands when we sing. And I read my Bible and I pray and I go to life group and I volunteer in a ministry and I serve, you know, the poor, one of our anchor causes. And I'm a good moral person, at least compared to that guy. And how can God not accept me? Look at all the good stuff that I do. And it's fundamentally rooted in this life of obedience, of performance. But the dangerous thing about living here is that eventually your life of faith becomes a life of fear. You start to be afraid. Well, what happens, if I'm, what happens if I don't perform? What happens if I make a big mistake? If it's all about my obedience, what happens if I screw up? Is God going to reject me? Are people going to reject me? And faith can become a really kind of like compulsive narcissist or a compulsive and obsessive thing. I haven't had a, a quiet time for two days. I haven't read my Bible and prayed for two days. And now the guilt is starting to build because I'm starting to feel like a failure because I thought that God was impressed with me based on what I did. And now that I haven't done that for two days, I'm a little bit afraid that God's not going to be impressed anymore. Um, it leads to a kind of an invulnerable faith. I have to pretend that I have my act together because if anybody finds out I'm not perfect, they're going to judge me and condemn me. And so we play this pretending, posing game of, no, no, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And we're afraid to tell each other how things really are. And honestly, at the end of the day, eventually this kind of faith, the, the, the life and the love and the joy just gets sucked right out of it because God isn't a loving father. He's a demanding boss who's unreasonable and just keeps piling work on your desk. And there's no way for you to keep up. If you, the Bible says that a life with God is about unconditional forgiveness and it is about unconditional obedience. But if you overdo either one of those, you end up in a faith that really is death rather than life. And so how do you live in the balance? How do you breathe and inhale and exhale and keep those things in rhythm? Well, we're gonna look at how Jesus responded. And we're gonna look at it in two phases. First, how Jesus responds with this uh, attitude of forgiveness and this call to obedience as we express it towards other people, as we look at other people's lives. And then secondarily, this attitude of forgiveness and obedience as we look at our own life. Okay, so first, as we look at other people's lives. This is what it says in verse six. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. First thing Jesus does is he confronts the people who are accusing the woman, who are judging, condemning her for her choices. And notice what, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, come on, guys, it's not that big a deal. Just let it go. Jesus would never say that sin and disobedience is not a big deal and we should let it go. It is a big deal. Because biblically, what sin is, sin is everything that brings pain and chaos and turmoil and destruction into our life with God spiritually, into our life with ourselves uh, emotionally and psychologically, into our life with each other relationally, into our life in the world societally and culturally, and into our life on this planet creationally. Anything that brings pain and chaos and turmoil and destruction and death, that's what sin creates. That comes from sin. Now, I just want, I want to be really clear 
and call a timeout and say, if you're experiencing pain, I'm not saying that pain is the direct result of some sin that you committed, that God's punishing you for some bad thing you did and that's why you're in pain. It, it may be that you're experiencing the consequences of your choices, but, but I'm not saying that all pain we experience is your fault because you committed a sin, sin somewhere. What I am saying is that every sin you commit creates pain in the world. Maybe not even for you, maybe not even immediately. But at some point, sin ripples or pain ripples out of the decision to sin, which is why Jesus says sin is always a big deal. He says, I've come that you would have life, which is love and joy and peace and hope and healing and wholeness and beauty and abundance and community and so on. Anything that undermines that, sin is what undermines that and it creates pain and disruption in the life that Jesus calls you, which is why Jesus always confronts sin. He confronts sin, as we'll see, with the Pharisees and he confronts sin with the woman. Obedience matters, which is why I just want to say this out loud. If you're living in relationship, a loving friendship with somebody who's making destructive choices and you're not confronting that with them in love, you're being unloving to them. You're being the opposite of Jesus to them because what you're saying is, well, I don't care if you bring pain and destruction and chaos into your life. And I don't care if you bring pain and destruction and chaos into other people's lives. I don't care if you don't experience the life Jesus wants for you. It's your choice. That is a profoundly, the number of times I had to say, I don't care to describe that attitude. That's a profoundly unloving way to be. Jesus calls us to name the sin that we see in each other's lives out of love. So he doesn't say it's no big deal. But what he does say is let he who is without sin. So we have to confront it in a very specific kind of way. If we're going to be people who demand unconditional obedience, we have to do that in a very specific kind of way. This is what Jesus takes issue with. He takes issue with the fact that they're calling out sin in an attitude of selfishness. See, the text actually says they saw in this circumstance the opportunity to accuse Jesus to gain some sort of advantage over Jesus because of this woman's sin. They're not addressing this sin in her life because they love her. They're not addressing this sin in her life because they're in loving relationship with her. They're not addressing this sin in her life because they want to walk with her towards wholeness. No, they're addressing sin in her life because they are personally gaining some sort of advantage out of the activity of condemning and judging somebody else. Most of the time, well, I would say all of the time, if you live in a spirit of condemnation and judgment, the reason you are condemning and judging what might be legitimately sin in somebody else's life is because you're getting something. You're doing it for you, not for them. If you're being condemning and judgmental, you're doing that for you. And Jesus says, you got to stop. Confronting sin is not about what you can get for yourself about making you feel better about you or about giving you standing in the community because you knew some juicy story or just, the Bible says gossip goes down like a piece of you know, rich steak. You know, it's just whatever you're getting out of it, Jesus says, just stop. Just stop. If you're not in loving relationship with somebody and you're not willing to walk with them through to wholeness and holiness, then their sin is literally none of your business. It really isn't. The only opinion you're allowed to have is unconditional forgiveness, that Jesus considered this person to be worth dying for in order to forgive their sin. And that's it. 
He condemns their selfishness and he condemns their self-righteousness. This is the whole deal about him writing in the dust. What was, what was Jesus writing in the dust? When it says that he was doing that in the story. Do you know? Of course you don't know. You can't know. Because John doesn't tell us. And since this is the only record we have of this story, we're never going to know what Jesus wrote in the dust. It's impossible to know. Now that being said, let me tell you what Jesus was writing in the dust. Okay? So here's the thing. There's this interesting interpretation of this passage that goes back to the earliest days of the church. And it goes like this. Remember that this was right after the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And in the Feast of Tabernacles, people were praying for God's provision, specifically of water, in order to uh, bring the crops for the next spring. And if God doesn't bring water, what is the ground going to be? It's not going to be soil. It's going to be dust, right? You can have the dust bowl of California, whatever that was. It's going to be dust. Without the water, what you're left with is dust, right? And so all week long, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the very people Jesus is talking to, would be in the temple every day teaching on the prescribed passages for tabernacles that often had to do with water, specifically. And one of those passages was Jeremiah 17, 13, where it says, Lord, you are the hope of all Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. On the last day of the, t- of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood in the temple and proclaimed that he was the source of springs of living water. Anybody who came to him would have springs of living water flowing out of their lives. And I think when Jesus goes to write in the dust, whatever he was writing, some people think he was writing their names, all the Pharisees' names. Whatever he was writing, what he was, he was referring to this passage and he was saying to the Pharisees, you are those people who have forsaken the Lord because you have rejected me. You are the ones who need to repent because your sin is greater than hers, which is why he says, if anyone is without sin and they all turn around and walk away because they know that he's just confronted the sinfulness of their attitudes. He confronts them and says, if you're going to live in the place of unconditional obedience and you're going to be calling out sin in people's lives, you'd better not do it in attitude of self-righteousness. Like he says elsewhere, how dare you pick the religious speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a whole freaking sinful eye beam poking out of your face. Paul says uh, in one passage, this is a trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's our attitude. When we call out sin in the spirit of unconditional obedience, when we call out sin in people's lives because we're in relationship and we love them and we're gonna walk with them lovingly towards wholeness and holiness, when we call out that sin, we do it from the attitude of, I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm just telling you in humility and repentance, recognizing my own brokenness, I'm just telling you what I see in you and maybe we can walk together to becoming the people God has created us to be. The way it works out in our relationship with each other is that we live in an attitude uh, where we are intolerant of sin, where we believe in unconditional obedience, but we live it out in an attitude of unconditional forgiveness with each other. 
That's, I think, what Jesus would want to say to us as we call this out in each other. What would Jesus want to say to us as we process this in our own lives? Well, in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman. He said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I find it interesting that Jesus says two things. This woman who filled with shame, totally red-handed in her guilt, caught in an affair, knows that she's doomed. He says two things to her. A word of unconditional forgiveness. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. What I have just seen in you is not going to cause me to roll my eyes and shake my head and cluck my tongue and wag my finger and vent my frustration on you. I don't judge you and I don't condemn you. He doesn't say I condone it. It's not okay, but he says I don't condemn you. Um, Your sinfulness is not enough to make Jesus reject you. And the invitation that's built into that is that you can just come to him exactly the way you are. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to get your act together in order to be worthy to come to Jesus. When I was younger, my mom used to get a cleaning lady to clean the house every week on Thursdays. And so every week on Thursday morning, I woke up to the same reminder. Hey, Mike, cleaning lady's coming. Better clean your room. I'd better what? Cleaning lady's coming, I'd better clean my room. The whole purpose of the cleaning lady coming is that what she does is clean my room. Why do I have to clean my room in order to prepare for the cleaning lady who's gonna clean my room? That's what she does. It made absolutely no sense to me. My mom insisted that we had to clean our room before the cleaning lady came. And Jesus says very specifically, the reason I come, 1 John chapter one, is to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The reason I'm coming is to clean your room. I'm gonna clean your room from top to bottom. I'm gonna clean your whole house. I'm gonna clean out your life of this sin. I'm going to help you become the person I've created you to be. And you don't have to clean up before the cleaning person comes. Jesus knows that he's walking into a mess and he doesn't care. That's his job. That's what he wants to do. And so you don't have to pretend that you've got it all together and you don't have to pose. You don't have to lie. You don't have to be invulnerable. And you don't have to be afraid that somebody is going to judge you for not being perfect. Because if somebody judges you for not being perfect, they are being the opposite of Jesus to you. And another word for that is anti Antichrist. They're being the antichrist to you if they judge you. And if you tell me about it, they'll have to deal with me. Is that a deal? Because we're not that kind of community. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pose. You're not going to be judged because like Jesus, we accept each other just as we are. And then he says this other thing that has to do with unconditional obedience. He says, now go and stop sinning. Like, remember, this was a big deal in this woman's life. She was having an affair. There were two families hanging in the balance, two spouses, two sets of kids, two livelihoods, potentially, two reputations, two um, standings in the community. There was a lot of stake. There was a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of turmoil and chaos, a lot of devastation and destruction that could be unleashed by sin running rampant in this situation. Jesus says, I love you enough to say, stop it. 
Don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to your kids. Don't do that to your partner. Don't do that to your life. He says you're making this choice because you want something to fulfill you and satisfy and give you the life you always wanted. I promise you, Jesus says, I am the life that you always wanted. And the way to experience that fulfillment and satisfaction is to walk in unconditional obedience in the way of Jesus. So stop it and come with me. I love you exactly the way you are and I love you way too much to let you stay that way. That's unconditional forgiveness and unconditional obedience lived together in the tension of faith. A couple years ago, I was having a very bad interaction with my oldest daughter. I kind of feel bad. I've left Kennedy out of this talk for some reason. But I was having a bad interaction with Arlie. And the longer it went on, the worse it got. And I was getting frustrated and angry. And she was being resistant. And at one point, I just lost it. I just lost my mind on her. And I, uh, to my shame, I yelled at my five or six-year-old daughter like I have never yelled at anybody in my entire life. And I could see as I was, the words were flying out of my mouth. I could see in her eyes that something inside of her was breaking apart. And she just, she just burst into tears and I mean, talk about a way to diffuse this incredibly horrible situation because she burst into tears and then I burst into tears and I flopped down on the floor and she came and she sat on my lap and the two of us just sat there and cried and I apologized profusely and she forgave me generously and we sat and cried and after a while, she kind of got her act together like she was sort of composed again. And she said, Dad, I want to go play. And I said, you can, you can go. And as she walked out of the room and I'm sitting on the floor, tears still on my cheeks, I felt in my spirit, I felt God say to me, you know you're a good dad, right? And at that exact moment, I did not know that I was a good dad. But it was as if what Jesus spoke into my spirit was him saying, I, I saw what just happened. But just know that I don't judge you and I don't condemn you for what you just did. Um, I don't agree with what you just did, but I don't judge you. I look at you I don't look at this moment. I look at you and I see who you are and I see who you are to me and I see your journey and I see your story and I see where this is going and I believe in you and I believe that you are a good dad. And it was this incredible moment of unconditional forgiveness to me that then was so incredibly liberating because I realized I didn't have to perform and jump through some hoop and, and master, become some sort of level of perfection for Jesus to love me and embrace me. I just realized that he was okay with me just the way I was. 
as a dad, as a husband, as a person, as a pastor, as a leader. As, he was just okay if everything wasn't perfect. He loved me anyway. The thing that happened in the wake of that as I processed that moment over the following months, literally, is that this thing grew in my spirit, this motivation, this compulsion to become the very best version in Christ's power in relationship with him, the very best version of myself that I could ever imagine possibly wanting to be out of love for the one who loved me so much. John says in his letter, we love because he first loved us. And I felt the love of Christ and the unconditional forgiveness in that moment. And it awakened in me the kind of love for Christ that has compelled me to want to become with his power and strength, the very best version of myself that has called me to be that I think which I don't live all the time that is what Jesus invites us into unconditional forgiveness and unconditional obedience where he loves us exactly the way we are but loves us way too much to leave us that way may we learn to just breathe the grace and the truth of the love that Christ has for us. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we gather here because we need you. Because we're not perfect, because we're broken, because we screw up. And we just need abundant waves of your forgiveness every day for falling short of being the people you created us to be. And thank you May we, would you let us experience it more and more deeply? Thank you. Uh, for the forgiveness you've poured out in our lives and the forgiveness you've poured out on the cross. And would you now awaken in us this spirit that you've planted in us to help us become everything you've created us to be out of love for you in response to your love for us. Fathers, we go now to the communion table and we gather as those who have chosen to love you. Would we receive in these elements your love in tangible form, both your unconditional forgiveness and an unconditional calling in your strength to being the people you've created us to be. May we find those things go deep into our spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.